You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great, if you've got a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to Exodus chapter 2. That's what we looked at last week, and then we're going to read Exodus chapter 3 this week. We're doing a series called Moses Made for More. And this week I'm looking at the whole thing of the calling of Moses. I would say that Moses is a classic superhero out of the Old Testament. I don't know if you think much about that. I was thinking, you know, I would describe him almost as a guy with a cape going, let my people go. If you've never heard about Moses, he was the great lawgiver. He was a miracle worker. He was the Exodus hero. He was a prayer. He was a prophet. He's been accredited as having written the first five books of the New Testament. He was a poet. His name is mentioned 700 times in the Old Testament. That's before Jesus came. The New Testament, which is from the life of Jesus onward, he still gets to be mentioned 80 times. But actually, we know that he spends 40 years as a shepherd. I'd love us to read this, uh, this chapter, which you know is almost like the calling of Moses. One commentary, they go, that uh, Adam saw me reading, a guy called Basil Atkinson says this, this is one of the greatest and most pregnant chapters of the Old Testament. I thought, what a way of describing something. It's almost like this is one of the greatest, and there's something contained in this chapter which is absolutely incredible. Let's ask God that he would speak to us through it today. Father, as we come and we look at Exodus 3 today, We ask that you'd birth something in us. We thank you that this is a a true story. This is your word, and it is relevant for today. And so we pray that you'd speak to us. We want to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, I'm going to read the whole chapter, Exodus chapter 3. Moses and the burning bush. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face. Because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of the slave drivers. And I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land. A land flown with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I 
that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it's I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I've promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. I don't know about you, I find that this is just amazing, this book. I feel it is just packed with truth. I don't know how many of you have been to the fun fair or something and you see like this claw hand and you put a pound in the machine and it sort of goes around. And if you could get it to drop down and pick up a bear or maybe a large bar of chocolate and get it over to the the trap, you get to win it. No? No one's seen that? Anyone? Okay. I sometimes think we approach God's word like that. I felt quite challenged when I started this last week. I think we sometimes think, okay, God, what am I going to grab this week? And will I get it out in time? Will I get something from God this week? I felt God said to me in in this whole series, I don't want you to think of a claw trying to grab a bear and and maybe in time you get it out. I felt God say, it's going to be much more like a kid and a box of celebration chocolates at Christmas. You think about it. If you've got a box of celebrations, maybe your kids are better behaved. Maybe it's just me. And somebody offers me a box, I put my hand in like that. You think, thank you. I think I'll keep a few of those for later. You know, you just, it's, and I, I feel there's so much truth in here that we could just literally grab and take out. Suddenly you think there's sort of series after series that I would love us to do. I guess one thing that I want to look at this morning is the whole thing of the calling of Moses. I don't know about you, we, we often know people when they're famous, don't we? I've got a picture here of Whoopi Goldberg. 
I'm sure many of us have seen her in films, aware of her. Anybody know what she did before she was famous? She was a beautician in a morgue. So she used to make dead people look nice. There you go. What did she do? What about Hugh Jackman? Anybody know what Hugh Jackman did before he was an actor? He was a PE teacher in a secondary school. PE teacher. What about Johnny Depp? What did he do before he started winning all these awards for his acting? A pirate? He should have been a pirate, shouldn't he? He used to sell pens over the internet. There you go. You never know. You could have brought a pen. What about Kay West? Sorry? Carney West, sorry. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't know this one was. I had to get my daughter to help. He worked a sales team in Gap. There you go, before he was famous. Jennifer Aniston. Anyone know what she did before she was famous? She, she lasted two weeks, tele-sales. And what about Harrison Ford? He was a carpenter. Oh, and this guy got it right. That, I mean, that is quite sad, but very impressive. <laughs> Harrison Ford was a carpenter. You see... I think often we know these people for what they've done and their great exploits. Many of these people have been on the screen and you think, wow, we don't always know what happened beforehand. Moses, actually, we get to discover this. If you weren't here last week, we believe that by the end of this chapter, I know it's only chapter three, that Moses is 80 years old. We believe that he, well, we know from Deuteronomy that he lived to be 120 We believe that he spent the first 40 years, this comes out of Acts 7, if you listen to the testimony of Stephen, the first 40 years, Prince of Egypt. That would be a great name for a film, wouldn't it? You know what I'm saying? What you don't tend to get is the sequel, which would be Shepherd in Midian. He spends 40 years, Shepherd in Midian. I mean, this is what he was doing, 40 years wandering around with sheep. If you weren't here last week, you know, last week he killed a man. It was like all action. He suddenly thought he was going to deliver these people. He steps in, bam, he sorted it all out. Gets scared, runs away. 40 years. Just imagine that. I'm only 24, but by the time I'm 40, I think, what have I done in my life? Realities, you just sort of think, oh, God, 40 years leading sheep. You couldn't even have a lamb curry without feeling guilty, could you? I mean, what kind of life was the guy leaving? What kind of life do you think you're living? Some of us, if we're, if we're really honest, we're, you're sat here and you think, man alive, Pete, I've got too many years behind me. I think time has just ticked away. I really thought I'd be somewhere else by now. I really thought I'd have done something else. I'd have thought a door might have opened for me. I was really hoping, I don't know, my business would be up and running. I'd be in some relationship by now. I really thought I'd have made my money and got 10 properties in my portfolio by now. Why are you confident that God has got your life in his hands? I mean, this is Moses the superhero, and yet he spends this time as a shepherd, literally wandering around. Even there, I believe that God was guiding him. It says, doesn't it, that he ends up at this sort of mountain of God. I wonder if actually God directed his feet to be there. I believe that God had an appointment with Moses. God wanted to speak to him. You might suddenly think, I I don't even know why I'm here this morning. I believe God's directed your steps. 
You might think, oh, I normally come here. Is that why I'm here? Now I believe God wants you here. You might think, I've not been for a while. You think, God wants you here. I believe that God determines our steps, just like he did with Moses, the shepherd. You see, Moses was due to meet with God. I, I, I can't remember. It depends a little bit how, how accurately you read the book. Six or seven times in the book of Exodus, Moses climbs a mountain and this is like, it's a symbolic act of how he meets with God. It's funny. It says, oh, he goes up the mountain. He meets with God. So some Christians believe that you have to climb mountains to meet with God. I used to be a school teacher. When I was a school teacher, I used to take year six, that's 11-year-olds, away for a week's outdoor pursuits. And it was a place in Tunbridge Wells called Bowles Outdoor Centre. And we do rock climbing, abseiling. It's tough life being a teacher, I know. Canoeing. This whole outdoor center had been started by Christians who wanted to prepare people for their mountaintop experiences. We know that you don't have to climb a mountain to meet with God. We know that because of Jesus Christ, you can meet with God while you're catching the bus. We know that you can pray anywhere, anytime. And that's why we encourage people to pray everywhere, all the time. We're to have lives of prayer, lives of encountering God. But I do sometimes think there's something important. The day of prayer and fasting, I think there's something really important of setting aside time. Ah, oh, I tell you, it's been fantastic. I think the last three months, boom, 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 it's been brilliant. I would encourage you, set aside time to be with God. What else do we see is this introduction about Moses. We suddenly see a bush on fire. It captures Moses' attention. Jewish tradition would say it was a bramble bush. The Bible doesn't tell us this. It's funny because some people have sort of struggled with this whole analogy, really. When you look at some of these, they think, was Moses just having a vision? Was it a flower? It was a bush with fire on that looked like a flower. Some said it was where they caught the sunset in the bush. Some said it was actually a bush that was on fire, but it completely consumed it. I'll tell you one thing. It shows a God who is over creation. And I think, again, when you, when you start looking at this, you think, wow, the wonders of that. How on earth could a bush be on fire but not consumed? Well, it can only do that because it's a God, isn't it? God could, could make the bush burn but not burn. You think, but that doesn't make sense. But, I mean, that's the kind of God that Moses was coming to meet. I think of the disciples when they're in the boat with Jesus and, and suddenly the storm gets going, doesn't it? And these are fishermen, for goodness sake, and they're in the boat and they start panicking and Jesus is asleep and they wake Jesus up, wake up, we're going to drown. And what's Jesus do? He says he gets up and he stills the storm. And the disciples go, wow, even the wind and the waves obey him. That's the kind of God that we're reading about in this story. Now, I could just say, oh, God is over creation, and he is. And in some respect, there's almost like a little, oh, do you see that? Throughout the whole book, we see God over creation. We see a river turn to blood. We see uh, things that are amazing, hailstones coming down. We see frogs, and, and wow, you think, God, how on earth do all these plagues happen? Because God is over creation. I think there's a sense of an opening of God. But I think actually if we read Exodus, there's a little bit more. You see, whenever you read a book like Exodus, you can start seeing some themes come out. And one of the themes of Exodus, this, is fire. This is, I wish I was a magician. 
I don't know about it. Yeah, when I was a kid, I always used to ask for magic tricks for Christmas. I'd love to, I, I wish I could have learned one today that I could have gone fire and it would have just appeared on my hands. You know what I'm saying? Wow. Because whenever you had fire in Exodus, it was a sense of God's presence. So we know that when the people were being led, you could say by Moses, there was this pillar of fire by day and by night. It was a sense of this is God's presence. And so actually when Moses comes to this bush and he sees fire, what he really sees is there's something of the presence of God. That's true in the New Testament. It's a theme that carries on. We know that when Jesus had died and risen, he'd gone back up into heaven. We know that the disciples were gathered in a room, don't we? We call it Pentecost. And it's like this blowing of this violent wind and this noise. And then what happens? They see something that looks like flames over everyone's head. Why is that? Because that's the sense of the presence of God. I believe that here now. That's what we believe the Holy Spirit is. I mean, even when Jesus was baptized by John, you know, he said, well, I, I can't really baptize. He said, look, actually, I'm going to baptize you with fire. That's how John understood Jesus, a baptism of fire. I'd say when we look at Moses and we discover something, he just went and saw a bush on fire. We can know fire inside of us. Wow. Anyway, I've, I've got to bring three quick points that I want to out of this. Like I say, I feel like there's celebration chocolates this morning. Some of you think, oh, golly, I need some of that Holy Spirit. Some of you think, oh, wow, God is over creation. Some of you think, oh, wow, God is determining my steps. What I want to say is this. God calls Moses. That's what I get out of this chapter. As you say, I, I'm here to, to look at this, and I consider it a real privilege to study. The last time in the Bible that God had appeared was over 400 years prior to this. Guess who he appeared to? It was to Jacob. And what did he say to Jacob? He said, it's all right for you to go into Egypt. 400 years later, God is appearing and saying, actually, I'm taking my people out. So this is like it's God appearing, God is initiating, God is saying, look, it's time to go. I love this, don't you? There's so much tenderness even about the passage. What's he say? God called to him. He didn't call him. As I said, I used to be a, a, a school teacher, I was a primary school teacher, and to be totally honest, I was the only bloke that was in the school teaching, and so I ended up doing PE most of the day, which is tough, but I really enjoyed it, you know what I'm saying? So I'd have lesson after lesson where these ladies predominantly didn't want to do PE, would send them out to me on the field, and I'd do PE all day. What a, what a job, you know? But I just couldn't remember everyone's names. And so he said, Oi, you in the blue shorts. Bottle it, you know, come and sit down. And it's almost like if, if I could, couldn't speak to them, I'd just shout at them. God is not like that. There's something tender about God. It's something about he calls his name. We know that he does this with Abraham in Genesis 22. We know he does it with Jacob in Genesis 46. We know he does it with Samuel, the little boy, doesn't he? Samuel, Samuel. Do you know that tenderness? I love the song that even came this morning, didn't it? God is a father, a father that knows his name, our names. Isn't that just incredible? As he calls him, not only is he tender, but he reveals something of his heart. He says, I've seen, I've heard, I'm concerned. His people were in slavery. And God says, I'm going to do something about it. In fact, I'm going to do something about it. I am going to send you. 
I have to be very careful here because, you know, you always get excited about what you're preaching out on the day. When, when Moses meets with God, he does, God doesn't say to him, oh, let's make a, a daisy chain of love, does he? He doesn't just say, oh, let's just sit in the middle of meadow and make daisy chains together. He says, actually, come on, we're going to meet. And why are we going to meet? Because I've got a job for you to do. There's something about an intention. God says to him, I want you to break my people free. I want those that I love out of captivity. I want the bondages that they're under, 400 years they've been slaves. I want them broken. I want their destiny established. Why does Moses get spoken to? Well, it tells us in the passage. Because I want my people to come and worship me. I believe that that is true for us. I believe that when we're called to come and encounter God, which we are, I don't know, you know, sometimes I think, golly, you could have a huge, great fun on this, couldn't you? Couldn't we just set the whole stage on fire on a Sunday morning? Wouldn't it be great if we came to worship and you just thought there's all these sort of pyrotechnics going on? Why is this? Because God is here. It's almost like we come and encounter, you know, you could, we could set all the musicians on fire as well. Wouldn't that be great? Well, not if you're married to them, I'm sure. But, you know, you could stand there and just flames going up. We come to this visible expression that God is here. Why? Because we're to go and gather a people to bring them back to praise his name. I mean, that was the whole purpose of the story, wasn't it? Jesus, when he said to his disciples, what did he say? He was walking around. It was a villaging place, wasn't he? And they were fishermen. He said, come, follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. It's almost like, come, enjoy time with me. I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus didn't wait until Matthew 28, until it was the end of the book. Jesus didn't wait until he'd risen from the dead and said, oh, by the way, the small print is, you've now got to go and do it. When he first called them, he said, this is the job I've got for you. Don't we believe that right from Adam and Eve, God's purpose for us was to fill the earth with people that would worship him? That was true for Abraham. That, I believe, is true for Moses. Now, what about us? How will we respond to that call? Well, what I love about the Bible is it's so honest, isn't it? How did Moses respond to the call? What did he do? How did he react? Well, we know this. He lacks confidence. Before, he was quick to muck in, to have a go, but that got him into trouble. Forty years later, he suddenly seems nervous. He's, he's, he's risk-averse, as we might say now. It's almost like, oh, before I was happy to give it a go, but now I'm risk-averse. Now I'm not sure. Now I don't know. While I was preparing this, I feel that there could be some folk here this morning that that is true of you. You might say, well, actually, Pete, I love the sense of being called by God, but I told some people about Jesus once, and they didn't respond. In fact, they rejected me, and now I'm not sure. You might have even thought Steve was giving that notice, and you might have thought, well, actually, I used to serve, but I felt that people just took me for a ride, and now I'm not sure. You might think, well, actually, even like taking the offering, well, I gave my money and I was spontaneous at one time and I was full on, but even baptism, I just don't know. It seems a step too far. How do you respond? You could say that Moses was older and wiser, but I'm not sure he really was. I met with a guy 
uh, last week, I think I might have mentioned, not this week, the week before, he's up 75, led a church, two churches, and still on fire for God. And I always think, oh God, let me be someone like that. I've often said I love it, the fact that Chris is here, and you know, I'll embarrass him that I know he's 70, but actually, he's still saying, God, what, what are you going to ask me to do? He could be instrumental in setting up of the food bank across the borough because he says, hey, I still believe God's got things for me to do. It'll be really easy for him to sit at home and cut the grass or, I don't know, paint Trisha's nails or something like that. But actually, he says, no, I'm going for God. I'm not saying you can't paint nails and go for God, just a throwaway example. Will we be those that get old, that respond like Moses? He ends up asking question after question after question after question. The first question says, who am I? It's almost like I'm too weak. I can't do it. Who am I? I'm in a job like that. Who am I? I wonder when God says, to you, Look, I really want you to tell your neighbors about me. Do you respond, who am I? When he says, actually, I'd love you to pray for someone at work. You go, who am I? I lack confidence. I can't do it. Second question comes out, who are you? It's almost like, what shall I tell them? I feel ignorant. Some of you may even think, I'd love to talk about Jesus, but I don't know all the answers. And if I don't know all the answers, I'm not going to start because somebody will trip me up. Somebody will ask a question and I haven't got an answer to it. And so we think, actually, uh, when it comes to this, uh, yeah, who are you, God? In fact, it goes into chapter 4. I'd love to read the whole of chapter 4. Many of the commentators say that it goes through to 4 verse 17. I believe it is as one passage. There's another three questions. He says, what if they don't believe me? What if people don't listen? What if I'm so unconvincing they're not won over? Do you think that? Oh, Pete, I love coming and I enjoy the Sunday morning and I could enjoy seeing the flames here. But what if they don't listen? What if they don't believe me? He then says later on, I can't speak. I'm I'm, I'm tongue-tied. I go to say something and I I stutter over my words and I seem to make mistakes and I I seem to get something wrong. He says, I I just can't do it. He even ends up saying, please send somebody else. I wonder if you're like that. You're like saying, God says it's you. And you go, what? And he says, oh, please send somebody else. I don't think I can do it. I'm not really up for it. I'm not really your man. I I don't know you well enough. I don't know them. I can't do it. Is that how you respond? I feel challenged by this. I feel challenged myself. It's almost like I'm too ordinary. Send somebody else. I read this week, Jacob was a cheater. Peter had a temper. David had an affair. Noah got drunk. Jonah ran from God, Paul was a murderer, Gideon was insecure, Miriam was a gossip, Martha was a warrior, Thomas was a doubter, Sarah was impatient, Elijah was moody, Abraham was old, and Lazarus was dead. God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. And I think that's true, isn't it? If God is calling us, are we just going to think about all these excuses and think, I couldn't possibly go? Or are we going to say, what about me? I think sometimes the danger is we say, I can't, therefore I won't. Instead, we should say, I can't, but he can. I can't, but he can. You see, what I love about this story is that God doesn't say to Moses, no, 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 there, there, you're a really special person. You're unique on the inside. I know you, I made you. 
God doesn't say, no, no, you could do it, Moses. What does God say? I am, I will. I think the danger is sometimes we even we get sucked into society that says, oh, I can do it. Yeah, you can do it. You can do it. I mean, it'd be easy to say, oh, no, come on, you can do it. You're good enough. You're great enough. I think the passage here is we can't do it, but he can, and he will. It's not about us trying to summon up our ability or our strength. It's not about us trying to polish ourselves well enough. It's actually about him. So he says, I am. I am the self-existent one, the creator and the sustainer, the eternal one. This is what this name means. And some would say, oh, if you could unpack the name I am, well, we know that it was unpacked, don't we? We know that Jesus unpacked it. We know that if you read the Gospel of John, suddenly the I am becomes seven statements, doesn't it? I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. The I am does get unpacked in the second half of the book. But even here, there's an unpacking of the I am. I'm the ever-present God, ever-active. I am with you. I am the sovereign God. I'm the inexhaustible one. I'm sufficient for all your circumstances. It's funny because I think, you know, you can, if you, you look at this and suddenly I feel like it's a chapter of two halves. It's almost like Moses saying, I can't, I can't, I've got questions. And God saying, I can, I will. If you look at verse 13, what is my name? God says, I am who I am. There's a, there's a God who reveals himself. That's what I believe in today, don't you? I think if I've got to try and convince someone, God reveals himself. If you look at chapter verse 16, go assemble the elders and the people. He's the changeless, caring God. He comes to the aid of his people. If you look at verse 17, he said, I have promised. Well, if you know the Bible, you know that he promised this to Abraham. I think it's Genesis 15, verse 3 or something. He said, your people will be slaves for 400 years. I'll bring them out. God promised it. God says, I keep my promises. That's what he's saying. If you read verse 18 and 19 about how Pharaoh is going to be, God says, I know what is going to happen. I'm a patient God. If you read verse 20, you could say, actually, I'll stretch out my hand. I'll do these wonders. God is a God of power and sufficient resource. If you read verse 21 and 22, you know they come out because God is a God of victory and transformation. And so when there's this sense of calling from God, it's not about how good we are. I think that's the, 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 the danger is that we could look at this and think, oh, golly, I could. I mean, as I say, there's so many pictures here. I mean, it says, doesn't it, you know, God came down and spoke to Moses. We know of one who came down, Jesus Christ, don't we? It's not about, oh, well, could I possibly brush myself up? If I got a cape like Moses, and if I went around going, let my people go, you know, would I then do the great thing God's called me to do? No, because it's not about me, but it is about him. And if I've got the fire that he offers, not in some bush that's at the front of the stage, but it's in my heart, who knows? Who knows what God could do with us? If he's calling us, who knows where he could take us? You see, I think that this is a, a fantastic story. You could, many could say of the past, but actually I think there's some amazing truth for us here. God still calls today. God still calls today. 1 Peter, which is one of the letters in the New Testament, it says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, 
a holy nation. What are you? A chosen people. I believe that I became a Christian not because my parents took me to church. I was raised in a church-going family. I praise God for that. I believe that I'm a Christian because God chose me. God loves me. I mean, that's just amazing truth, isn't it? God chose me. It says in Galatians 5, this is Paul writing to the church in Galatia, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. You see, if it's about him choosing me, then it's not about what I do. If it's about him choosing me, when I feel I've messed up, he still chose me. If it's about him choosing me, when I feel that I've blown it, his hands are around me. It's not about me trying to cling on to him. I believe that here we see a picture of God calling us. You might not even be a Christian here today. Then I want to say God wants to call you. He wants to call you with love and tenderness. His, his name, he calls your name. Come, I know you. I want you to hear my heart. I want you to know that I've seen what's happened in your life. I want you to know I've heard the prayers you've, you've muttered. I didn't even know it was to me. God wants you to know, I know you. You might say, Peter, what does that mean? That's what it means to become a Christian. Literally, we, you know, people here that are Christians say, God called me and I obeyed. We have these books that are available. Why Jesus? They're on both desks. Page 18, there's a prayer there. And you might say, well, I've been, I feel God tugging at me. I wouldn't know what to say. It says here, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for the things I've done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything that I know is wrong. Thank you, you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. Please come into my life by your spirit. Some of you, you might think, be here and think, I'm not a Christian. I would encourage you, grab on these books, talk to me, talk to somebody else. We would love to pray this with you. Some of you say, Pete, I've done that years ago. I've done that too. It is my privilege to know that I've been called. Then actually, what I feel is the life of Moses, what happens is you quickly read that what, when God gave him a call, he then said to him, go somewhere. Where did he say go? Go and find the elders. And in fact, it wasn't just the elders because Moses says, I can't really do it. He also said, your brother's coming to meet you as well. And so we know that this call that Moses get caught up with is with his brother and the elders. And I believe that we're caught up on a call together as a church. I believe that we don't have to do our call on our own. But there's something about us being united. I believe that Jesus has called us not to make spiritual daisy chains sat around on a Sunday morning, but for a purpose. Jesus says to his disciples in John, the Gospel of John, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I would say if we're Christians here, then our, our calling is, is, is go get my people that they might come and worship me. Go get my people that they might come and worship me. That's why we talk so excitedly about an alpha. Because what we're saying is, come on, I want you to go and find people and bring them in that they come and worship me. That's why we say to people, look, we've got a whole load of flyers done for a Sunday morning. Go give them out. 
We got boxes. I've got 20,000 of these sat at home. You know what I'm saying? Somebody in the church has already taken a box off me and said, I'm going to deliver a box of them. Why? Because they want to go. And they would say, bring them in. This is surely what, what we're doing. That's why we do an Alpha. That's why we've got a craft day coming up for families at Easter. That's why we have small groups that say that we want to be community, but impact the community. Because we, we, we want to say, we've encountered the living God, and he sent us on a commission to go. Os Guinness, who's an author and social critic, says this. Thus, for followers of Christ, calling neutralizes the fundamental position of choice in modern life. I have chosen you, Jesus said. You have not chosen me. We are not our own. We were brought with a price. We have no rights, only responsibilities. Following Christ is not our initiative, merely our response in obedience. Nothing works better to debunk the pretensions of choice than a conviction of calling. Once we've been called, we literally have no choice. Now, I know that's a long quote, and I probably should have stuck it up there, but it's a scary one. So if it scares you, you could skim over it until I put it on Facebook. Because I think, actually, what it says is, if we're called, we live fully for him, not for ourselves. That's why we love it when someone gets baptized. Baptism is a sense I've died to myself. I live for him. It's a picture of a grave. They won't let us dig a hole in the floor of the town hall, so we will stand something up and put the water inside it. But the picture is you've gone down in your grave. You come up. I've died to myself. I've been called to live for Christ. This is what the whole picture is here. Now, some of you, you've got other callings as well. And I would love to have talked all about that. I had 10 points that I could have gone to on how to discern your calling, whether that be in the business world, whether it be in education, whether that be as a parent. Whether, you know, there's loads of callings. But actually, what I do know is that we're all called to go and to gather people, to come and to worship him. I know that we're going to be breaking bread in just a moment. The band might want to get ready for that. I feel that there's a challenge here because... When Moses first saw the bush, you could say that seeing is believing. Right? He sees this bush on fire, and then suddenly he believes. Wow! But actually, I think the story continues that believing will then be seeing. You see, God said to him, go gather the people. The sign that I'm with you is that you'll be here. Well, the sign didn't happen until afterwards. And actually, for some of us, we've got to believe God. Okay, we've seen something already that's been amazing, and that stirred us to believe. Now we've got to believe God and take steps of faith. And who knows what will come out as a result of that. This is not because of us. Please, I'm not trying to say we've done it. It is because of Jesus Christ, which is why it's so good for us to break bread. But I'm going to hand over to Mark and to Adam for that.